Mm-hmm. I like that. Now, one you know, one terminology, right, that you've used in the course of the interview, that's part of the name of the organization, this prison industrial complex, this term. I was hoping that you could kind of define it for us, and I wanted to give you the space to both be, you know, really sophisticated with that definition, mm-hmm. but then let's get to, like, what the fart guy, you know, fart jokes guy, mm-hmm. what would you say to him? Wow. <laughs> like, trying to define wow. prison industrial complex. Definitely. So the term was coined by Miss Angela Davis, and it basically refers not only to the prisons, the detention centers, the jails and like the direct physical monuments of like confinement and incarceration, but also to all of the indirect ways that those play out. So um, neighborhood segregation and educational inequality and um the use of prison labor and all of these things that that build up to the prison um, that push people out of schools and into prisons that push people out of work and into prisons and when they come out of prisons like makes it hard for them to find housing and work all of these these things that work together it's like a, a web of of control um, yeah and it's it's and I really like that term rather than I mean we talk about mass incarceration which is huge and, and it's a big thing but I think prison industrial complex really um, really makes it clear that it's more than just the incarceration it's all the stuff that happens before that leads people to being incarcerated and the stuff that happens after they have been incarcerated and the stuff that's happening in these communities where people are being incarcerated over and over again. Um, So I really like that Mm. phrase. DSRlive.com Brown Student and Community Radio. Lagging a little bit behind here. Oh, look, and it works. Yeah, just... uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's Tuesday night. We are back in the studio again. Our favorite time of the week. Thank you all for uh, tuning in with us. Um, I gotta be honest with you. The best thing about working um, with Sonic Watermelons is um, I find all these great people out and about, and I find that it's a little creepy when you just go up to them and you're just like, "Hey, you're doing really neat stuff." I keep seeing all this stuff about you on Facebook, and uh, I want to talk to you about it. And people are just like, "Why are you stalking me on Facebook? That's really creepy." Uh, but now with the radio show, it's like, well, we've got this radio show, and you know, I want to bring you in and talk to you, and then it's less creepy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, that's uh, that's how we got James in here tonight. James Montero with uh, College Unbound yes. uh, Prison Bridge Program, yeah. uh, seeing so much cool stuff that you're doing on Facebook through Thank Friends you. of Friends, and uh, I just said, yeah, I need to talk to him. I need to know what's going on there. So here you are. Yeah. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, James Montero, born and raised. Uh, well, not born. I was born in Germany, but raised pretty much in Mount Hope area of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, currently, I am employed with College Inbound. I am the director of the Prison Bridge Program, and I love it. So that's what I do. And basically what we do is we help individuals who have started a post-secondary education, either behind the walls or who have been recently released from prison, be able to finish once they, once they, what they started in prison once they're released. So the goal is to help people um, to finish their bachelor's degree um, in hopes that they will decrease recidivism and they'll be able to find better paying employment. So. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do, how do your students come to you? 
do they do you reach out to them do they you know are they informed of the program and you know how does that work um some of it's happening by word of mouth through other students that we have a lot of it happens through the department of corrections we are the official bachelor's degree program for the department of corrections we are currently in maximum security we are uh, in medium security minimum security and women's prison that means we have cohorts uh, of people who are moving towards their bachelor's degree inside the prison in all of these facilities and we work with them so once they get out they seamlessly transition into the cohort that we have on the outside so a lot of students come to us from inside the prison and then there's some that come to us from word of mouth from students that are already in the program or from uh, maybe parents or, or significant others uh, referring them into the program or also through parole and probation. Are, would you say most of your students are um, in prison or have been made their way out? We're uh, only a year. We're only a year um, year into the program, so mm -hmm. most of the students that we have, the the greater population that we have, is inside the prison right now. We probably have around eighty students inside the prison, and we have roughly around thirteen or fourteen on the outside. Okay, and um, would they finish their their entire degree be in prison? Behind the walls, no, they cannot. We, we don't have the ability to award bachelor's degrees behind the walls yet. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware. They removed prison education. They removed Pell Grants from the prison system, I believe, in 96. And since then, a lot of uh, uh, college programs have been removed from the prison system. Um, so right now, what we do is we go in and we offer up to 12 credits for free mm -hmm. um, to the students that are in prison because there's no way for them to pay for it. And then when they get out, they're able to um, receive uh, Pell Grants financial aid, which enables them to finish the program. But we're unable to take somebody from 60 credits to 120 behind the walls. So you said 96. They, they took the Pell Grants away. They took yeah. basically what all courses away? They took any um, programs that were funding funded through Pell Grants inside the prison. They eliminated the, your ability to receive Pell Grants inside, inside the prison. And once they did that, a lot of colleges that were inside the prisons, they, there was no way for the students to pay for their courses anymore. So they just ended up pulling out of the facilities. That's why the work that we do inside the prison right now, mm -hmm. we do it for free. We don't get paid for the work that we do with those 80, 80 to 90 students. Um, the way that we get paid is when students are released, then they're able to register for our courses just as if they were registering for any other institution. For and then institution. complete their degree from there. Oh, absolutely. That's the goal. So wh why would they, <laughs> why, why did they stop all that? Why did they stop the grants and everything like that? Uh, and what are they supposed to do? Just sit there? Congress. A Repu few Republicans got <laughs> together and they were like, we're not paying for this. Even though the truth of the matter is um, in the state of Rhode Island, it costs approximately $50,000 a year to incarcerate one male. Mm -hmm. um, to incarcerate one female for a year, it costs the state probably $110,000. So in essence, they are paying for it. But they're um, just paying to sit there. They're just paying to sit there. Correct. And then they've and got nothing to fall back on when they get so out. So when these guys are guys or girls are released, they have little to fall back on once they're released. So it ends up, that's where the revolving door comes in. They just end up coming back in prison. So we spend another $50,000 a year for them to, to be incarcerated again when we could have spent probably around 
five to ten thousand dollars per year to give to them an education them, which education is proven to reduce recidivism the more education somebody has uh the more likely they are to receive adequate paying employment to keep them out of prison which just makes sense absolutely so, especially seeing as though we failed a lot of the people that are incarcerated we failed them in the public school system so we to should, begin with to right? begin with exactly well, that's sorry. <laughs> that's just depressing. Um, but you've but you've got these eighty people in there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any ability to expand the program to take on more, or is it just based on um, right what now? You're it's funding? based on um, classroom space inside the prison. We've actually we we have the capacity to take on more students. If we wanted to double the amount of students that we have inside the prison right now, we could literally do so tomorrow. There's a waiting uh, list for our program. It's just that DOC doesn't have enough classroom space to accommodate um, the demand for programming that's happening behind the walls. And the interest is there from oh, from the inmates. Absolutely. Absolutely. What what kind of courses are they taking? What kind of classwork are they doing? Um, we're taking a globalization course. We take a lifelong learning course. They are taking a lot of the courses are centered around projects. We do project based learning. Um, what piece? What students are interested in, and we build the courses around that. And like the courses are uh, grant writing. Um, what's the other course that they're taking? Community assessment. These type of courses. So and it's more geared towards. Like, people behind the walls, they're kind of limited into what professions they can get into. Mm -hmm. So we try to uh, sculpt the courses around professions that they would be able to get into that are broad enough so that they can go into certain professions that they would be able to get into. And you're saying that they're, they're limited in terms of what? How are they limited? Like, you can't have somebody that is that has a criminal background, I'll never be able to work in a hospital or I'll never be able to work in a bank. These or in child care like I would never be able to work in you're in, just precluded based on your yeah. on your history yeah because criminal background. backgrounds mm-hmm. I mean I won't say never but it's highly unlikely that um you have somebody that will be able to work in these professions that has a criminal background so what are they going for what kind of careers are, are available to them believe it or not a lot of people incarcerated are business savvy they have very good business sense um obviously because if you take skills that usually are used in the negative way for business <laughs> and you transfer them in a positive way uh they they can use them in that way um uh substance abuse counseling social services um yeah these type of professions counseling human services uh yeah so that's what they're transferring to once they're that's getting what I've out noticed. i've noticed a lot of people either want to start their own business or want to start nonprofits uh, geared around substance abuse counseling and social service agencies. Yes. So you um, you said this has only been going on for a year now. We're a year in right now. Okay. How did it get started? How did this get started? This actually got started from a conversation that I had with director of the prison system, At Wall. At Wall has been actually believe it or not, um, a champion for programming behind the walls of the Department of Corrections. Uh, I had went to a symposium where him, a good friend of mine, Sol Rodriguez from Open Doors, they were all speaking on a panel. I raised my hand and I asked them if they had included the people who had been incarcerated in the decision-making, some of the decision-making that they were making. And after that, he came to me, gave me his card, and for approximately a year, we went out to lunch me and him and he picked my brain and we just started to discuss what what we think would be the best uh, uh, 
solution for people who are coming out of, of prison. And what I told him is I believe it's education. So that's where it pretty much began from. And the fellowship. Tell me more about that. How did the you... Echo and Green? Yes. I applied for Echo and Green because Echo and Green is a prestigious fellowship that helps you build your program. Um, and they're connected to a wealth of resources that's out of New York. Uh, there's a stipend involved, but I always tell people the stipend is little compared to the resources in, that they provide you with. And really, it's the network. Um, there's a network of people that I can tap into that help me with uh, grant writing, help me with fundraising, that help me with anything that I could think of, business plan. They, they help me with anything in regards to this the prison program. So this is your baby? Um, it's work that I love to do. Yeah. Absolutely. And this Absolutely. is it keeps me alive from your own personal history. Um, I was formerly incarcerated. I spent approximately 20 years in and out of prison up and down the East Coast. And it wasn't until I decided because I dropped out of school pretty much in eighth grade. And it wasn't until I decided to go back to school um, that my life began to change. When I was released, I was released in um, December 10th, 2009. I had an associate's degree. I tried to apply for a job and the only job I can get really was delivering pizza. Mm -hmm. Everything that I was applying for that would pay me a, a livable wage was bachelor's degree and above. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to College Unbound, which enabled me to get my bachelor's degree, which enabled me to sustain my, earn a liv livable wage that sustains me and my family. So that's where the idea came now were you able to take advantage of any classes when you were in prison i got my associate's degree while i was in prison okay um i had been taken so that was back when they still had the classes well yeah um yeah and no because i kind of learned how to maneuver the system a little bit okay i actually applied like i wasn't incarcerated and i had some good pretty good uh gd teachers that would proctor exams for me Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so so you were able to, to work the system and, and <laughs> get your associate's degree while you were still in prison. And mm -hmm. then once you got out, um, how did you find out about College Unbound? Um, I found out the, um, about College Unbound at the Botanical Center. The Nonviolence Institute had a fundraiser there. And it was the guy, Adam Bush, who was the provost for College Unbound. He was there and he told me about the program. And I had dismissed it at that point. And then while I was working at OIC, uh, a coworker of mine, he said, I'm going to this really cool thing. They're having an information session about this school called College Unbound. You can get your bachelor's degree. They'll accept all your previous credits. And the light bulb moment from my conversation with Adam, mm -hmm. I remembered that. And so I went to check it out. I got in and the guy that took me didn't. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. probably like, really? Yeah. No. He took my spot. Yeah. That was good. So then you got your bachelor's, and from there you've been able to develop this program. Yeah, um, I pretty much a lot of it came from personal experience. I did a lot of research um, on Ove, uh, a lot of research from the RAND study on prisoner reentry educa uh, education uh, as a model to be used for prisoner reentry, and I took. I took from a lot of other models along with my own personal experience, along with the experience of a lot of people that I've known that have gotten out and, and become successful and formulated what we have now as the Prison Bridge Program. You said you were looking into OVE? Yeah. What's that? It's the Office of Rehabilitation. It's something with education. I forget. It's the government. I know it's from the government. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge report. It's like... A, like three four hundred page thick report and i had to read this light report. reading right yeah yeah no it was good though because um 
the thing about it is there has been a resurgence of education happening behind the walls. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is there's a disconnect from what's happening behind the walls to what happens when somebody gets out. It's like you start education behind the walls, you're doing great, and then when you get out, life on life's term hits, and it's like I got to feed my family or go to school. I got to get a job or go to school. I got to find housing or go to school. And a lot of people, I mean, it's only common sense. They're going to drop school. and Well, it's survival. Yeah, and right. it's survival. So what we try to do is deal with those outside issues so the people that have started education and want to com- um, finish once they get out, they can focus on education. How do you how do you help them balance that? Um, I As far as the outside issues? Yeah. We help them with employment services. We, have, we hired a case manager that helps them. We have a person that helps them with registration and financial aid services. Um, and we have a host of services uh, revolving around uh, substance abuse counseling, um, connecting with uh, uh, medical care, uh, Medicaid and all that other stuff. And yeah. So mm-hmm. it's developing that support system to... I think one of the hugest support systems is actually the cohort of people who have gotten out and are getting the education because when guys come home, they see others like themselves who are pursuing their degree also. So and they is, know it's possible. Is there like a, a mentor system of people that have gone through with people yes. who are coming out as well? Absolutely. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, has anyone graduated from it yet? Um, we have one graduate. Yes, one graduate. Excellent. But we're a year in. A year in, that's fantastic. So. <laughs> at the door anyways. That's great. We um, is there? Where can I direct people if they want to find out more information? If they want to pass the information on to someone who is in prison right now and would be interested in it, mm-hmm. how how do we get We're that online. information to them? Uh, our website is collegeunbound.org. Um, they can contact us through there, or I mean, they can also contact me through my personal number, which I don't mind because I actually work phone. I can leave you that also. Okay. Um, and we're gonna um, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna mm. let Kellen um, get back in with some music. Um, but it is it's Tuesday night. This is Sonic Watermelons. Um, Jessica here talking with James Montero from the College Unbound Prison Bridge Program. Um, taking a quick break for some music, and then we will be right back with you. Because we all need to learn about these things. I mean, you know, hey, if you do the crime, you have to do the time, but doesn't mean that you need to be mistreated also while you're there. Mm. And there's a lot of things that are happening. And our people, are, we, we've seen articles here and there about judges getting paid to send people to prison and mm-hmm. all these things going on. So we need to educate ourselves and just while we're here to shed some light into stuff. You know, I think what you said was kind of interesting, though, Jose, if you do the crime pay the time like that's I think that's a bit of a myth a little bit also uh, that I wanted to kind of get into and have uh, Sharice talk a little bit about it Um, you know one of the the publications uh, that you guys you know did uh, in May I think it was right was Mm -hmm. this uh, zine which was just this um, really and I had I've seen it in print 
like for a second and then I feel like you snatched it away, Sharice. I feel like you were just like, no, you're not ready for this. I don't think that's how it went at all. <laughs> I think it was but Marco. The dramatic <laughs> voice in my head reinterpreted it that way. But I was looking on it, looking at it online just to kind of prepare for the conversation. And, you know, there's this one section where you talk a lot about some of the historical moments um, or legislative, you know, actions or policy changes that are really related to the formation the growth of prisons and the idea of um, of paying the time because you committed a crime kind of thing. So I, I wanted to ask you to speak on, you know, some of the historical developments that, that relate to what we see today. So, yeah, the concept of a prison, I think, came about in the 1700s. And before before 1865, prison populations were relatively small, and it was also a very northern device because um, it, it was just like confined to, to mostly the American North. Um, then after, and, and when that was happening, um, because black people were enslaved, the prison population was all white. Directly after the Civil War, and W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about this when he wrote Black Reconstruction way back in the day. Um, directly after the Civil War ended, the prison population switched dramatically to being all like predominantly black everywhere. Um, and that's because during the Reconstruction era, you had the creation of these laws called Black Codes, and they basically criminalized acts that were basically things that only enslaved, like previously enslaved black people would do. So it was like vagrancy, just hanging around on the street too long, um, not having employment. You know, all of these people who were slaves and got out of sla <laughs> slavery didn't have places to live. So they were vagabonds. Mm -hmm. They didn't have jobs because they were all slaves and no white person was going to hire them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so years. it, it directly criminalized blackness. And that's really when you see the beginning of the shift. Um, and Michelle Alexander you know, coined it and called it the new Jim Crow. Um, but really, it was written into the 13th Amendment that slavery was unacceptable except as a form of punishment and imprisonment. And directly when those words are written, you see the slave popu the incarcerated population go to being overwhelmingly black. And it stayed that way today. And so everyone's talking about mass incarceration and like, you know, black men and women being incarcerated at such high rates, but this has been happening ever since basically the birth of the modern prisons. Mm. All right, we are coming back at you. Uh, Sonic Watermelons, Tuesday night on BSR, uh, Brown Student and Community Radio. It's Jessica hanging with you tonight. I have James Montero in the studio with me uh, from College Unbound Prison Bridge Program. And um, I'm, I'm a little aggravated, i got to be honest with you. I'm actually a little, like, super aggravated right now. Um, I'm just sitting here thinking about what you said about uh, how much it costs to incarcerate an adult in a, or a man or a woman. And yet we could be educating them. We could be giving them skills uh, to make them, you know contributors the to yeah. their society when Absolutely. they get out and i was thinking a lot about um the new jim crow have yep. you read that michelle Alexander, absolutely yep um and, and it's just 
it's aggravating me. It's like, it's like just, well, you know, let's just keep them there. And, you know, then we don't have to think about it. We don't have to think about them or deal with them. We'll just keep them in prison. And maybe it costs a lot, but they're out of our way. Yeah. Is well, that how you feel? Um, well, the system of, of incarceration uh, has become a system. And we have to understand that by reducing, by you reducing that population or, or rapidly uh, making some type of change there, you mess with a system that's been in place for a while. So there's also a backlash to that as well. Um, whether or not people, there's there's all kinds of theory, whether or not people want, want people incarcerated or whether they don't want people incarcerated. I think it's a lot of it is just based off of fear. And fear usually is based off of um, not having correct information or all the information. So if I think if people were more informed, about what's going on and more informed about some of the solutions, some of the alternative solutions, opposed to just locking people up. Um, I think if they were given that information, perhaps they would buy into it, opposed to just lock them up. I, I watched this DVD. It's like, what's the back? If you lock a whole generation up, which we that that was our solution in the the, the 80s and 90s, the crack crack epidemic. Right. Just lock them up. So put them away. Don't deal with them. Just what's the backlash of that? The backlash of that is what we have now, and that's what some. This is I seen it on a DVD, and it made sense to me at the time. Is you have gangs. The backlash of locking up a whole generation is that you leave all the children out there to pretty much figure it out for themselves. So you eliminate the males, a, a predominant amount of males from from a community, then you have a bunch of kids out there who pretty much making the rules themselves, and that's what. We and have don't have now. the guidance to. Exactly. Stay out of it. Exactly. So if we don't do something, if we continue to just have the only solution, our only solution is lock them up. So we lock this generation up. What's the next generation look like? That's that's the scary part. That's the thing we need to address because it's obvious that we went from a prison population of 700,000, pretty much roughly. That's what the prison population stayed from the inception of impris imprisonment in this country all the way till I think, 19 like mid 70s early early 80s and then all of a sudden we skyrocket war on to 2.5 million lock them all up right put them away that's not an increase in crime that's a change in policy you know that's a change in policy and somebody is profiting off of that too um i i, I would guess yeah i would guess yeah but at the same time i don't think it's it's profitable anymore it's actually costing everybody Oh, it it's not it's not profiting money. for us, but there's a business out there. There's uh, you know, there's yeah. private pr prisons out there that are mm -hmm. making good money mm -hmm. off of keeping those prisons full. Yeah. It's election season. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it honestly because I, I just want it to be over. I just I'm want, sorry. you know, what is it November 8th, I think? Yeah. I want it to be like November 10th. I just want it to be done and <laughs> I'm sick of everybody arguing, uh -huh. but some of these arguments have to be had. Um, you have the candidates in front of you. You know, what do you want to ask them? <laughs> I know. I'm just going to throw this at you. How do you? I mean, obviously, like, Trump's not even an option for me. It's so I don't want to ask him anything, to no. be honest with you. There's nothing I, I want to shove to him in a closet ask, somewhere. Ask <laughs> That's just my own personal view. Some of y'all may like Trump. I mean, uh, go for it. I don't know what to tell you. But me, personally, I have... Like, nothing to ask Mr. Trump. 
But um, even let's say let's let's keep it out of the presidential election because okay. that's obviously uh, a pretty heated topic for yeah. for a lot of people. We still have you know governors and mayors mm-hmm. and senators being elected, uh-huh. and uh, you know some of these policy changes mm-hmm. um, with you know taking away education for these for the prisoners. Mm-hmm. How do we start that conversation about getting it back? Oof, that is an elephant. That is an elephant. Um, the reason being is because, again, a lot of the reason why education was taken out of the prison system was based on misinformation, a lack of information. And a majority, for somebody who is going up for re-election at this point, they would have to change the, the, the minds and the perceptions of the people because a lot of people do not have the information. A lot of people's have, lives have been affected by crime, and a lot of people just just lock them up mm-hmm. um, not realizing that over 700,000 people are released from prison each year each year 700,000 people are released from prison that means if you just lock them up I mean they're coming home so what are we going to do for them right so if you talk to a politician about that issue that sort of issue right now they're going to have to be very brave because the ultimate goal for any politician is to what Get reelected. To get reelected. And to touch an issue like that right now could actually hinder their chances of being reelected. So I see that as it's it's an uphill battle. So is it better to not even bother with them and just go grassroots talking I'll, to the I'll voters? Be, I'll be totally honest with you. What I've what I've the approach that I've taken in my own life is not wait for anybody to do anything for me that I'm capable of doing for myself. Um, and that is what's gotten I me mean, to the point where I'm at now. I was incarcerated only, what, six and a half years ago. I came home without a pot to piss in. So the only reason why I'm here now is not because I waited for somebody else, because I took action. And I think the action has to come from those who are being affected. I think the change of perception has to happen from us. And I think by educating us, and more, the more of us that come out educated, the more of us that are able to articulate ourselves properly, the more of us that are not going back to prison, it automatically changes that perception. If we try to go straight to the perception, that's going to be a difficult battle. The best way to change that is to change the people that the perception is, is about. And that's a slow and steady. That's, that's not going to happen overnight. It, it will not, but I see it as, I mean, that's where I feel is. I can make the most change. Mm-hmm. I think it's it would be more difficult for me to try to change the perception of the people. You said you um, you dropped out of school in eighth grade. Yes. Okay, and you have a young daughter, right? Yeah, my baby. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your baby girl. Right. How do you um, how do you guide her and say, uh, "Don't do what I did"? Um, I mean, a lot of what I've done after the fact is a testimony not only for her i mean my friend has come back into school because of me Mm -hmm. my brother who has no criminal past has actually come back to school so um especially with kids it's it's more so what they see opposed to what you say so i just try to love her i try to tell her that she is capable she she can do anything that she sets her desire to and it is my goal that i can hopefully um sustain her enough where as though she has a choice to be whatever she wants to be or opposed to having to hurry up and get into the work, mm-hmm. work world so yeah. awesome mm-hmm. and 
so you just you provide a good example for her and not just through this program but also through your work in the community that's my so tell me about that billy taylor house tell me about what that is Billy Tailhouse is a program I started in the Mount Hope uh, neighborhood. Uh, what we do is offer workforce development enrichment opportunities for youth ages 15 through 21. Um, the concept of the program really came from an individual who was an icon in the neighborhood. His name was Billy Taylor. Um, he was born with a heart condition, wasn't supposed to live past five, ended up living to be 27, passed away at the age of 27. But in that short lifespan, he impacted whole community myself included so um, one of the things I noticed was that especially with black males minority males um, when they pass away the memory of them fades away with with it Um, and it's very important for us to keep their memory alive I had read something a while ago it's old African proverb where um, everything with that was passed down was always passed down orally through tradition Um, And the way that they saw it is that a person didn't actually die in their tribe until somebody couldn't speak of their memory anymore. As long as there was somebody alive to speak of the memory of so-and-so, he was still alive. And when his memory faded to the point where as though nobody could speak of him anymore, that's when that person actually died. And I think we allow, especially positive role, black role models in the community, I think we allow their memory to die too soon, and we always keep the memory of the bad ones alive. So that's where the inception of Billy Taylor's came from, to try to preserve some of the history, the positive history of the Mount Hope neighborhood to provide youth ages 15 through 21 with workforce development enrichment opportunities and to push them towards education because this is the age that I dropped out of school. This is the age that I started going the wrong route. And these are dangerous ages. You don't wait for youth. This is it's a transitionary stage from adolescence to young adulthood. And you don't wait for an adolescent to become a young adult to try to teach them how to be an adult. You start to give them examples of this when they're in their adolescence. You teach them how to become a young adult. Yeah. And I push towards education. That's my thing. So the house... Um, is something that you've been renovating, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Oh my God, dealing with the city of problems. You have to understand, like I know nothing about construction. <laughs> I know nothing about permits. I know absolutely nothing about uh, zoning or any of these things. I could start a program. I could, <laughs> I could create a program uh, and tell you how to do uh, theory of change. I could sit here give you data for days and and the whole nine. But construction is not something. I know how to do so it's been a very uh strenuous learning experience to get this building renovated but like you just said you don't wait for anybody to do anything for you You just go out and do it yourself absolutely so how is the progress a 90 percent done we're actually all the systems in the when we acquired the building we were donating the building by bank of america it's the building that billy taylor house billy lived in himself mm-hmm. um and we were donated this building and Youth Build came and they demoed for us. Mm-hmm. And once they demoed, there was like a fire damage all over this building. The whole second floor was in danger of collapsing uh-huh. because whoever had the building before, once the fire happened, they didn't they didn't properly fix the what was underneath. They just patched up over it and I guess took the money and ran. Um, so what we acquired was a whole bunch of structural issues. So right. we immediately had to go from demo to structural, which then alerted the, 
the the permit people because we had a demo permit but we didn't have a demo and structural permit so well i'm like well the floor is getting ready to cave in <laughs> what do you want me to do well, not secure the floor <laughs> well that was a problem because they shut us down and they made us go back to get a structural permit and dealing with permits for the city of providence is like 444 westminster street they know me on a first name <laughs> basis because you're you not just dealing, over there. You're not just dealing with the first floor, which is permits. You're dealing with with the second floor, which is the the fire department. Because before you can get a permit, you have to see the fire department because of the fire that happened in Warwick. And then upstairs, we had to go see them because they're the ones with the funding. So in none of those floors communicate with of each other. Of course not. No. So they have you. Going, <laughs> they just have you going up and down the stairs. Exactly that's crazy but so you're 90 percent to completion mm -hmm. and then the goal is once you're completed is that going to be classroom space or we're actually putting for-profit businesses back and then my thing is for-profit businesses funnel back into a non-profit structure which allows us to um generate some of our own revenues to sustain sustain the program um again is that where some of the kids will be getting their job skills yes Awesome. Absolutely. They'll be where we're building a cafe. So it's not there. just theory. It's no like real life. Yeah. Work. The jobs. I mean, yeah, I, I, I love the kid to work in a cafe. I love the kid. We're building a barbershop there. I love the, to teach them barbershop skills. These are more soft skills that they learn at this point. And my thing is, like, if you, if you work for me, then you have to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole time we're taking them on college tours and a lot of it is like we take them to URI. Last year we took them to, to DC. I want to take them on HBC tours. I want to take them to Howard. I want to take them to um, North Carolina. I want to take them to these colleges. Um, and while they're working, okay, you're getting paid, but you have to do this. Mm -hmm. That's that's the um, that's the catch-22. So that's the agreement. Mm -hmm. So it's all education for you? It's all education. At the end of the day, it's all education for me. It's, it, you can get anybody a job, but a career is something different. Mm -hmm. To learn what it is that you want to do, to be able to do what it is that you love to do. And today, I don't, I mean, I think the newest discrimination in this day and age, I think it's education. Who has it? Who doesn't? Who has it and who doesn't? And that's why they make it so difficult for you to get it. Mm -hmm. Yes. The biggest debt is wow. what? Student debt. Yep. And so, God forbid, we give it away to the people <laughs> who are in prison. <laughs> exactly. We're not going to give it to them. That's crazy. Right. That's part of the argument. Yeah. yeah. My kid got a, and they're getting it for free. No, they're not getting it for no, free. No, they're not. Trust me. They're, they're giving up their life. That. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank you so much for coming in. This mm. has been a great conversation. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you and learning mm. more about both um, both programs. Mm. Um and we're gonna we're gonna plug them um, both too, just so people know where to go, check things out. Uh, it's collegeunbound.org, right? Yeah, collegeunbound.org, or um, yeah, Billy tell us we don't have our web website, but you can catch us on Facebook. We actually have a symposium happening on September 21st at the Met High School in the Black Box. Doug Wood is coming down. He is. Um, from the Ford Foundation, he actually funds education for the whole California prison system, New York prison system, and I don't know what other states' prison system, but um, it's going to be an interesting topic uh, around how can education play a part in reducing recidivism in the state. So who would, who would be your, your target audience for something like that? Target audience is uh, educational professionals, business professionals, um, 
housing professionals, all these people, because again, as I said, people come home, we, they want to finish their education. When I came home, I wanted to finish my education, but I had to figure out, okay, I need housing. Okay, I need a job. I need, so if we can get people to help us deal with these issues, it makes us, it makes things more easier for us around the education. I will say that Carol, Carol, um, from Carolyn from Alex Anani, she has been a wonderful support system. She has actually provided employment opportunities for some of the individuals. Who oh, are being that's great. From so if we can get more people like that, mm-hmm. that would be awesome. Business mentors and absolutely great. Yes. Um, and what was that date again for the open September house? September 21st. September 21st. And they can get more information about on college unbound website, collegeunbound.org. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, so we've got collegeunbound.org. Definitely check them out. Um, definitely go check out that open house. I think I might want to stop by and, mm. and see what's up with that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank you, James. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Uh, next Tuesday, make sure you listen in to us because we've got awesome guests. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> And a big thing that we talk about, too, is consumer complicity. And so um, by, I mean, students at Columbia were investing in the prison industrial complex by sending tuition to Columbia, which was making money off of the prison industrial complex. Um, there, are, there are lists of companies that rely in part on prison labor, which is ranges the, the hourly wages range between 13 cents and like $2 and something per hour Mm. um and we understand that you know like like walmart for example is one of these companies and we understand that for a lot of people for a lot of people from those same communities that are being targeted for incarceration um walmart is the only feasible option but we also know that as students at brown a lot of us can make a conscious decision to not to not support that company Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. because we have the privilege to do so Mm -hmm. um and we also know that some people at Brown can't make that decision um, because they come from different backgrounds. And so just raising awareness so about <laughs> raising awareness about all that. Yeah. I mean, I'm on full financial aid and my family, like we've shopped at Walmart before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not about like demonizing people. That's not it. It's just about like being conscious of what's happening and how how this company that is offering lower prices is also like investing in something that's getting your cousin locked up too. Mm-hmm.